0: Welcome back to Sisters in Law with Kimberly Atkins-Store, Jill Wine-Banks, Barb McQuaid, and me, Joyce Vance. Today, we'll be discussing the announcement by New Mexico prosecutors that they'll charge actor Alec Baldwin and others with involuntary manslaughter charges in connection with a shooting death that occurred on the set of the movie Rust. The Supreme Court's announcement that it's unable to determine who leaked the opinion in the abortion case, Dobbs, before it was final. We'll also discuss the latest on a lawsuit filed by Tesla shareholders against Elon Musk. And as always, we look forward to answering your questions at the end of the show. Today, I actually wanted to start us off with a conversation based on a question that one of our listeners sent in. Um, And the question was, after you do Wordle, do you do the B? And for those of you who have no idea what I've just said, um, I know that both Jill and I play a game on the New York Times app called Wordle almost every day, where you have to guess a five-letter word. And I also play a game called the B, where you get seven letters and you have to use them to make lots of different words. I always finish Wordle. I don't always finish the B. Sometimes there's just way too many possible combinations. But I do really enjoy doing it. I feel like it turns my brain on in the morning. I'm curious if any of y'all do it and do you do it morning or night? I do it at night. It is part of my
1: bedtime routine of, I set an alarm for 10 p.m., which is my first clue that I have to stop eating and start relaxing, although it's also my clue that I start working because I'm a night owl and I'm better at 11 o'clock at night to two or three in the morning than I am during the day. So that's part of it. But when I do finally say it's time for bed, I do wordle. And that is my, okay, now you're turning off your brain. Well, you start if you're right, you're turning on your brain. It's very good for keeping your brain active. And then I do start B. And then during the day, I will go back to the spelling B. I love that game because you get these random words arranged around a, like a beehive. And with those seven letters, you can make five letter words. And it's amazing how many you can't think of. And then when you look at the list the next day that they put up, it's like, Oh, that was so obvious. How did I miss that? And I really, I enjoy that. Those are my nighttime uh, routines for for going to bed.
0: They are really fun. Do you do it, Kim?
2: I do Wordle um, in the morning, Really when my husband does. So I w- at first I was very anti Wordle because I was annoyed at everybody putting the scores on their Twitter. Like I, I was just like, <laughs> nobody cares. Nobody cares about your Wordle score. Then my husband would do it like every single morning and he would send it to me. So, I, you know, I don't post mine, but we send them to each other. So we have a, a, a light, uh, gentle competition about who can get. I got one in two guesses this week, which I was pretty proud of, I must say. But um, I did usually- too. He's usually much better at it than me. I also had one day that it took me all six uh, to get it. So, But yeah, I do it in the morning. What about you, Barb?
3: Well, I would um, probably do it in the evening, except for the fact, I I do Wordle usually in the evening when it comes out at at midnight. Um, For the spelling bee, I have to do it in the morning. My husband and I race to be the first one to do it. Because we only we share one subscription and you can't clear it. And so whoever gets it first, like it shows up on our phone. So whenever ah. I tap it to start it up, I'm so thrilled when it says, uh, you know, it's fresh. Like nobody's found any words. Like, yes, I get to go first. But so often I open it and he's already a genius. He's really good at it. So not only has he found some of the words, he's found all the words. Like, ah, boo, done for the day. Um, but sometimes we what, what's best is when we do it back and forth. Because as you say, Jill, uh, sometimes there obvious words that you miss but if you're doing it with someone else they find them and so together we can do it pretty well but you know a lot of times i know he's in the other room doing it and i jump on and and try and beat him to it they're both really fun
0: i hope our listeners will also um send us their stories of of whether they do it because barb i honestly had not thought of that bob and i do it separately it would be so much fun to do the B together I can't get my husband interested
1: in these word games. He won't do them, and he's very good at it. So it's really too bad. I'd like to hear from people about posting scores because I got criticized for posting scores, and then I got people saying, oh, please, come on, join us. You have to post your score. And I thought, what the heck? I'm, and so I'm back to posting my scores and interacting with people about whether it's a tough day or an easy day or celebrating. Because like you, I this week got one in two. Uh, I think it's maybe the first or second time that I've gotten it in two instead of in mostly four or five. And sometimes six and very <laughs> rarely, but sometimes not at all. I enjoy seeing your scores, Jill. Makes me
0: smile. I do Thank too. Jill. I love that. <laughs> you and Stephanie Rule both post your scores and I like yeah. seeing
3: it.
2: So it's been yet another busy news week, including the news that actor Alec Baldwin is facing criminal charges in the shooting death of cinematographer Helena Hutchins on the set of the film Rust near Santa Fe, New Mexico in 2021. Baldwin was the one who shot a round on the set, the one that uh, killed Hutchins and the film's armor. Hannah Gutierrez-Reed is the one who loaded the gun and was responsible for the weapons on the set and she'll also be charged. Each each of them face two counts of involuntary manslaughter. You guys, I have so many questions for you prosecutors since I heard the news of this. So I want to get right to it. Jill, help us understand the nature of these charges, the charges that they face, and what penalties they face.
1: It's so interesting, but what's even more interesting to me, and so I'll answer your question, but first I want to say, when with. We say they will face charges. Normally, that means they've been indicted by a grand jury and they are going to trial. This is really where the prosecutor has decided to refer charges and it is now going to go before a judge who will decide whether or not to let them bring the charges. So there's still a chance that they can talk their way out of this. But the charges that the prosecutor is asking for are both involuntary manslaughter. And that means that there has to be some underlying negligence. Under New Mexico law, it's a fourth degree felony and is punishable by up to 18 months in jail and a $5,000 fine. It also includes a lesser included offense of negligent use of a firearm. And the other charge, which is Involuntary manslaughter in the commission of a lawful act, which requires proof that it was more than simple negligence. And uh, it's the same punishment of 18 years, but it also has a firearm enhancement, which could raise the mandatory minimum to five years because a firearm was involved. And so that's that would be pretty serious. And there's a third person who was charged, I, I guess would be the correct terminology, but who pled and um, to a lesser offense. So we can assume that the assistant director who has already pled is cooperating.
2: So Barb, we talk a lot on this podcast about the concept of Intent, And I think a lot of our listeners are probably thinking, well, what about intent? You know, I I think that probably with both of these defendants, uh, the intent was to make a movie, not to kill someone. Uh, So with these charges, how does that concept work, Barb, the concept of intent?
3: Yes, Kim, and I'm I'm sure everyone agrees that their intent was to make a movie and not to kill someone. What they've been charged with is involuntary manslaughter. And so that means it was an accident, uh, but that they uh, were acting under the intent of under the New Mexico law, gross negligence. And what that means is uh, someone failed to exercise the reasonable duty of care uh, in um, an extraordinary way. Um, In this case, uh, you know, we don't know all the facts in the public domain, and those will matter. The investigators have determined what those are. But, uh, you know, I I have heard it said that the industry standards are that um, you check a gun before you hand it to an actor to make sure there's not a live round in it. And so this armorer... um, you know, clearly fell down on the job there and did not do what uh, the, the ordinary standard of care would suggest there. Uh, for Alec Baldwin, um, I have read that it is the industry standard to never point a gun at someone. And so even though he says, I didn't pull the trigger, uh, it it doesn't matter because the gun did discharge, however it discharged, whether his finger was on the trigger or he says he had it in a cocked position uh, and it, uh, it snapped back, uh, That's why you don't point a gun at another person. And in addition, Alec Baldwin isn't just an actor in this movie. He was also the producer. And so if there was something that he did as the producer that was a failure of the ordinary care that a producer would do under these circumstances, for example, the armorer was also the property master, um, which is perhaps contributed to a distraction of duties. And so all of those factual questions will be for a fact finder later, which makes me believe that ultimately a judge will allow this case to go forward. To Jill's point, uh, all the judge needs to determine is whether there's probable cause. You know, I think it's another question whether a jury finds the facts that will satisfy uh, the guilt beyond a reasonable doubt that's necessary in a criminal case. Um, And I also think there's, you know, an awful lot of discretion at work here by this prosecutor to charge uh, this case and said uh, upon uh, saying that she would pursue charges, that it was important to send a message for deterrence, uh, that um, no one is above the law. And also that in the movie making industry, people understand that there are serious consequences if you don't follow the, the proper procedures to ensure that everybody is safe on the set.
2: Yeah, I think that's really interesting how the the impact that this will have, not just in this particular case, but on the film industry more broadly. And I think that's something that we will um, be watching in the months and and years ahead. You know, Joyce, Alec Baldwin is not a a typical defendant, and this is not a typical case. And in just thinking about this, it occurs to me that normally a lawyer... um, of a defendant would want that defendant to to be pretty circumspect to not be making public statements about the case and, and to really try to stay as mum as possible while potential charges pend. but Alec Baldwin has been out there doing interviews we have you know him see we saw him after the after the scene happened. Um, he's been doing damage control. He's even filed lawsuits against other crew members in an effort to reduce his own civil liability. How does this affect the prosecutors in this case? and how difficult, if at all, does it make his uh, the job of his defense attorneys? Yeah,
0: you know, it's such an interesting situation. It took so long. There was no suggestion a a criminal prosecution was in the works. And then sort of poof, out of nowhere, um, this shows up. And, you know, sometimes um, defendants do something that in the South we colloquially um, refer to as pissing off the police. Um, And I wonder if there wasn't some sense of that here, if Baldwin wasn't in some ways too cavalier about his involvement, um, and at some point there was a feeling that he needed to pay consequences. We, we don't know that, but it's a very unusual situation, and as Barb was saying, we know what they're, what we're reading because this is so early that there's not a lot that's out public, but at least for Baldwin's purposes, Kim, because he's got this really strong public presence, all of this stuff would be admissible at trial, it's hearsay. It's out-of-court statements. They would presumably be offered at trial to prove the truth of what he's saying. But this falls within a well-known exception to the hearsay rule, and a number of them really, at a minimum, one for um, defendants who make out-of-court statements against their interest. So if there's something that he's said that has caught prosecutors' attention, they'll very likely be able to offer it at trial. They may even have video that they can play, which is sort of every prosecutor's dream. Um, So it's a real interesting dynamic in this case. But like Barb says— Ultimately, this comes down to what was in his mind when these events were happening. You know, there are four basic homicide crimes, or at least in the federal system there are. There's first and second-degree murder, and then there's voluntary and involuntary manslaughter. And the dividing line between the different crimes is the defendant's state of mind. So when we get down to involuntary manslaughter, there's no intent involved, no malice involved. We're really talking about a form of gross negligence. There are a couple of different variations of involuntary manslaughter, but here it looks like it would most likely be based on that sort of a gross negligence theory. His public statements are very much to the contrary. Mostly, he's talked about the fact, you know, his shock, his personal sorrow, the fact that he thought that they were doing everything right. So this might be the unusual case where his public statements actually help instead of hurt. That's really interesting. Can I just add
1: the language of the New Mexico statute defines it as um, producing death, uh, commission of a lawful act which might produce death in an unlawful manner or without due caution and circumspection. That's sort of how they define the negligence.
0: You know, and we should say that there's also, under the statute, there's some possibility that if you're mishandling a firearm, that that can produce an involuntary manslaughter charge. There's this notion of misdemeanor manslaughter, which essentially means you're committing a misdemeanor, and in the course of the misdemeanor, the death takes place. The prosecutor could have one of those theories. We don't
2: really know a lot yet. Yeah. And Jill, you mentioned uh, the firearm enhancement earlier Talk a little bit more about that, because uh, unlike the underlying uh, crime, which has a, a an 18 month uh, potential sentence and it could be very likely that in, in any other case that there may not be. Uh, prison time sentence at all, the the firearm enhancement comes with a mandatory five-year sentence if he's convicted. Why do we have enhancement statutes like that? Why do states have them, uh, ones that come with such hefty penalties? And do you think it's imp- appropriate in this case uh, that the prosecutor uh, is thinking about charging it?
1: So that's two very different questions, Kim. And Illinois, by the way, has very strict enhancements for a number of crimes if you use a gun. And the reason that that exists is a matter of deterring the use of guns because guns can turn deadly. If you're robbing a bank and you bring a gun in, the chances that someone's going to die are much greater than if you brought in a a can of mace. And so to deter the use of guns and to prevent death from guns, enhancements are added as a way to control the use of guns. Now, that's when you're going in to commit a deliberate crime. But as you said, they were there to make a movie. And there are a lot of factual questions. Uh, It is reported that Hutchins, who is the deceased, told him to point the gun at her in a practice round, Um, So that's one question we have. He was handed the gun by the assistant director, who's pled guilty, and who said, cold gun. So he didn't know that there was anything in it. Um, And so there are a lot of issues along this line. But in this case, I'm not sure it's really appropriate to add a gun enhancement because it wasn't really part of committing a crime. And so Mm -hmm. it seems to me it's much more appropriate when there's an intentional crime that's being committed and you're trying to stop people, as opposed to someone who is making a movie, a Western, where guns are used. And I agree, so- Joe
3: It feels like double counting in a way, right? Yeah. When the gun itself is part of the crime, yeah. Yeah. And you know how, I mean, prosecutors
0: love to say bad facts make bad law. I think if they do bring that, gr- that gun charge here, it could really rebound on them. The courts could yeah. react badly to that.
2: Mm. Hmm. So, Barb, one of the things that that uh, occurs to me about this case is that it really has everything, including a special prosecutor in this case. And I thought about this morning, I thought about the fact like, oh, right. One of the things Alec Baldwin did uh, that we all know was on Saturday Night Live. He portrayed Donald Trump (laughs) for years and now. Literally, they both have yeah. cases where there are special prosecutors. Why is there a special prosecutor in Santa Fe, New Mexico, Barb, uh, handling yes. this case? A very different scenario from
3: <laughs> um, the special counsel situation of Jack Smith um, or even Robert Hur. Just give the case to Jack, right? I mean, let him yeah. have it. <laughs> <laughs> Just what he needs. I've got Mar-a-Lago, I've got January 6th, and I've got the rust set um this is a different scenario Kim this is uh, you know in the uh, special counsel situation where Merrick Garland has appointed special counsel under the federal regulations it is because he has determined there is either a conflict of interest of you know investigating his own boss or his own boss's political rival uh, or or other extraordinary circumstances here in the case of um, Santa Fe the the prosecutor there the elected district attorney I think simply wanted uh, additional help she said she thought it would move faster more expensive more, more effectively if they brought in one person who could focus solely on this. You know, so many district attorney's offices are overworked, burdened caseloads. They're, you know, working uh, day and night just to keep their dockets rolling. And the idea that someone could, you know, clear the decks to handle a case like this, I think was um, not a luxury that the district attorney there had. So what she did is she appointed a retired district attorney who had um, uh, spent, you uh, Uh, her whole career as a prosecutor in a nearby county and was even the elected prosecutor there. Although, plot twist, uh, in November, she was elected to the state house. So now she's got a day job. So that'll be interesting to see how that plays out. Although maybe now that she has investigated the case, she can turn it over to someone else to try. You know what it's like, Kim? A good example, I think, is in the case of Derek Chauvin, brought by the Minnesota Attorney General's Office. Remember they hired that lawyer from private practice named Jerry Blackwell, who was an excellent trial lawyer. And they just wanted someone with a lot of trial experience who might be, you know, really good with juries um, who could just focus solely on this case and not have, you know, to juggle the usual caseload of somebody
2: who works in the office. So that's why there's a special prosecutor here particularly since this will undoubtedly be a very high profile case, especially mm-hmm. in terms of what you normally see in Santa Fe. That makes a lot of sense. Joyce, another thing that this uh, case has, as Jill mentioned, is a potential cooperating witness. What impact do you think that had on the decision to bring charges here?
0: Yeah, so again, we don't know. It's it's very intriguing because anytime you see someone who's pleading guilty early, you know, this little blip goes on in your mind and you're thinking, ooh, could that person be cooperating? And we don't know here. This is the person who called that the gun was um, cold when it was in fact hot. Maybe there was always a thought that they would let that person plead to a lesser charge. Or maybe that person has additional information about what went on here. Um, that gives prosecutors a better chance at at convicting in this case. And, and, you know, it's, I think, easy to think that here, because based on what's publicly known, this is a dicey case. This is by no means a case where the judge signs off on it, let alone where the prosecution gets a conviction. Prosecutors don't usually do that kind of thing, especially in high-profile settings. So I I do have to wonder if this witness didn't offer something um, that makes the case stronger.
2: Well, it'll be dramatic indeed, and uh, we will uh, keep an eye on the developments as they come.
1: When the draft opinion of Dobbs leaked, it was a big deal. And it was an even bigger deal when the final opinion closely resembled that draft. Chief Justice Roberts ordered an investigation uh, the day after the leak. And yesterday, eight months later, we got the report, which failed to identify who the leaker was based on a preponderance of the evidence standard of proof. The report has met with derision and mockery. And so let's start with you, Kim, and talk about Who did Roberts assign to conduct
2: the investigation and what are her qualifications? So I know we use the term unprecedented way too much, but in this case, it really (laughs) fits because rarely, I won't say never, because there have been leaks out of the Supreme Court before, um, including Roe v. Wade, given this weekend's anniversary, it's important to know. But just everything about this case is so out of the ordinary. I've been covering the court since 2006 and just everything about this just blew my mind. And so when you have a leak like this, There's really not a go-to place for the Supreme Court to go to conduct this kind of investigation. So Chief Justice Roberts turned to the Marshal of the Supreme Court. Her name is Gail Curley. Now, think about her. What her role is, is is essentially akin to chief of police of the Supreme Court building. Right, So anything security related in the Supreme Court. So I, as a reporter, when I would go cover cases there, there are marshals in there that they are the people who I hand, I get a little card from the public uh, information office and I hand it to them to say, yes, I am authorized to go into the court and sit in the press section and watch these oral arguments. They're, they're basically the police of the court. They're tasked in making sure there's not disruptions, that that the building is secure. If anything happens, they would investigate it. They're not tasked with conducting some sort of forensic analysis of, you know, emails and printers and other things that this kind of investigation involves. So as this has really not, I don't want to assail her qualifications personally. She had, and she's only been there since 2021. She's relatively new in this role. Um, So this is just something that probably she nor anybody else had contemplated when she took this job. She's not, it's not like the FBI. It's not like, you know. Homeland Security and other investigative uh, agencies. So she, this was already at a, a disadvantage. But that being said, they didn't turn it over to another agency who does this, the FBI or anybody else who who is more akin at doing this. So they took it on. They did the investigation. They had Michael Chertoff, the former Homeland Security secretary, kind of, you know, look it over. And he said, no, there's nothing else I could think they could have done. And that was pretty much it. Yeah, it's really interesting because her
1: background is certainly not in investigations. Uh, She's certainly qualified for the job of marshal, which, if you read the definition of it, does not include anything about supervising investigations of this nature. Uh, Her background is in the military. So, Barb, let's talk about the report. Um, It identifies crimes that may have been committed in connection with the leak. And so maybe following up on Kim's reference— why didn't they use the FBI to investigate possible crimes?
3: Yeah, I'm not sure they could have here. You know, if you look at um, the dialogue, it's the Domestic Operations, D- Domestic Investigations Operations Guide for the FBI. Um, it says that the FBI can get involved in an investigation only when there is an allegation that a crime has been committed. And here, you know, there's a leak. It is um, certainly a violation of the employment manual, um, the, hand, the employee handbook of the court. It's certainly unethical, but it isn't necessarily a crime. Now they do say it's possible that someone had the motive of leaking it, of obstructing justice somehow, but that that requires a little more uh, speculation, I suppose. Maybe someone could make that argument that there's a predication here. Um, and now people have signed statements uh, to the um, the marshal gil curley uh, i suppose if there's a lie in those statements that could be a basis for a criminal investigation, but we don't know that anybody has lied, and so I don't know that they could have gotten the FBI to investigate. I suppose there's also the case if you're Chief Justice Roberts, some concern about separation of powers. You, as the court, want to keep it in house and have someone within your own organization conducting this investigation, as opposed to somebody from a separate branch of government, so as to keep your own house uh, in order and your own secret secret. I think a, a third alternative that might have been better here is what most other organizations do. I know universities and uh, corporations will hire an outside law firm to conduct an independent investigation. Um, And that is a way... Um, that you can have people who are experienced, Uh, you know, the marshal sounds like she's an incredible person, has done an awful lot of things, but not a lot of experience conducting an internal investigation like this. Uh, Maybe that would have been a way. But um, either way, uh, without a criminal investigation, they were missing some of those tools that they could have used, like a grand jury subpoena to bring people in under oath and have them testify, as opposed to simply saying, so, did you do it? Are you the leaker? Nope. Okay, thanks. (laughs) Have a good day. Who's next? Uh, But I, I I think those are probably some of the considerations that were given into who was the right person to conduct this investigation. So let's look at
1: that investigation and talk about the scope. And Joyce, did it seem to you that it focused on opponents of Dobbs? I mean, the uh, cover note from the chief justice said, this was no mere misguided attempt at protest. And so, you know, like who did they... Uh, interview, well, let's save that for Kim. You just talked about the scope and whether it was focused wrongly.
0: Yeah, I mean, I think what you're really asking, was it biased in its inception, right? Did they have a preconceived notion or did the chief justice have a preconceived notion about who was responsible and did he try to conduct an investigation that would prove that? It's hard to say for certain. I mean, frankly, I found this report very frustrating to read, Um, It's not an exercise in transparency, but you do get some sense that they were in fact looking for disgruntled people. I think that they actually go so far as to say that they focused on people who were disgruntled with the decision in Dobbs. Um, And that really goes back to Barb's point about the fact that this should have been conducted by someone who is independent and outside of the court. Some of the restrictions on the scope of this investigation that I know Kim is gonna talk about are are very puzzling to me because when you go into an investigation, you are supposed to be figuring out what happened. You're not supposed to walk in and say, I think X happened. Let's prove X. And to the extent that that's a plausible reading of this report, then all it does is it further damages the public's confidence um, in this court. And that Public confidence is, I think, at an all-time low, certainly at least in our lifetimes, at an all-time low. The court didn't do itself any favors here. So, Kim, that does take us to the key
1: question here of who was interviewed, how many people were interviewed, were there obvious candidates who should have been interviewed but weren't?
2: So, yes, so more than 100 uh, employees at the court were interviewed in more than 125 interviews so some of them were brought back in as part of this investigation now i've read the i've read this report multiple times and it seems that according to my reading none of those 100 people were the nine justices and it's very hard to tell if the nine justices were involved in this investigation at all, them or their family, well, would, it wouldn't have been their family members because they're only talking about employees here. Nobody who is outside of the court, which I found very interesting. Um, it gets to the point about trust. So on the one hand, there is a case to be made that, look, the Supreme Court justices uh, are the people who believe deeply in this institution and and that the rules should be followed and that its integrity should be protected. And so, you know, there's no need to question a Supreme Court justice in, in a case like this. Of course, they wouldn't do something like leak an opinion. I would think maybe 10, 12 years ago, that might be the case. I think at especially when it comes to public transparency and public trust right now, I don't think that that was the right way to go. I I, I think that at the very least, it should have spelled out clearly the role that the justices played in this investigation, whether they were interviewed or not. And that's one way I was really disappointed um, in this report. To get back to Joyce's um, point about who was interviewed and uh, you know, whether the, the point about people, they, they paid certain attention to people who may have been disgruntled or upset by this opinion. I was struck by just in the first paragraph um, in this that, as you said, uh, Jill, the leak of the draft opinion, the, the leak the leak was no misguided attempt at protest. When I read that to me, <laughs> at protest to me, there was an inference of one side or another because if it was a protest, then it was coming from one side of the court, oh, that's right? a good point. And I didn't, I just thought, John Roberts is a very thoughtful man and he chooses his words very carefully. And when I saw that, I thought, huh, it felt to me like there was a presumption that it came mm-hmm. from one side of the ideological spectrum of that court. So right away, I was just like, oh boy, here we go. Um, and And so... These are, you know, maybe that was inadvertent. I don't know. But these are little things to me that's just like, look, the the people on this court know what the that the public is struggling with them right now. They know what the Dobbs decision did to this nation. And so for them to put out a report that's worded in that way, that has this idea that maybe somebody who was angry about Dobbs and stuff, we don't know, it could have been somebody who wanted to hold the conservatives to their positions so that they wouldn't change them once this became public. We don't know. So these are all things that I have big problems with.
0: Hey Kim, can I ask you a question? Yes. Can can I ask you a question? Because I read that first part, you know, of what I assume is John Roberts' cover letter. He didn't sign mm-hmm. it, but I think it's reasonable to assume that that's him. And I had that exact same reaction the first time. And then the second time I went back and read it, I thought, well, he's saying it's no mere protest. Is he implying that maybe it was an effort to consolidate votes on the Republican side? Mm. And I feel like the whole report is permeated with that uncertainty. I'm stunned that no one has, you know, gotten out of the court an official statement about whether the justices themselves were questioned or not because that's super equivocal in the report. You know, they actually go to the lengths of citing the judicial canons of ethics, which maybe implies that they talk to the justices. But then, like you say, there's this real disconnect where just the sort of questions that they ask suggest it's not a justice. And, you know, you've got to really think here— you're a moron. If you are um, a, a law clerk and you are willing to compromise your entire career to get a draft of an opinion out a couple of weeks early, right? The only people here who can leak with impunity are the justices. So if you were doing Barb's independent outside investigation, they'd be a very logical place to ask questions. The court's going to have to issue a statement here. Mm. So, I agree with you. And I- I, I, let me just say I agree,
1: but I think there are some serious clues in how this is written that suggest that no justice and no justice's spouse were interviewed, and that's despite Jimmy well, it's Thomas's clear no justice's notor-
0: spouse was interviewed because yeah, they limited employees. to employees. Yeah. Yes,
1: and and when they say employees or personnel, which are the two words they use in general, they also go on to say that anybody who was interviewed could have been fired. Well, you can't fire a justice. So to me, that was like saying, uh, yeah, you can't, so no, no justice was interviewed. I agree
0: with you that that's there, but it's equivocal because judges are employees of the court. You know, if you're a judge and you're asked, where do you work? I'm employed by the Supreme Court or yeah. whatever your court is. That one comment, though, about, about, you know, being fired. You can't be fired, yeah. I agree, but judge, justices can be asked to resign.
2: That was in terms of who was interviewed. What I said was, it's unclear whether any of the justices were even involved. It doesn't have to be through an interview. And so that's what speaks, uh, that's what spoke volumes to me.
0: I mean, Justice Roberts could have gone to all of the other justices and said, okay, it's just us, who did it? Did you do it?
2: Yep.
3: Yeah. I'm agreeing with Jill on this one. I think it's obvious that that they did not interview the justices, and that if they had, they'd say so. And so the failure to speak means, well, we don't, want to, we don't want to flag it. We want to advertise it, but we're not going to say so.
2: But the fact that we're engaging in this exercise is a shame because it should have been clear enough that that should have been clear for all the American people.
0: It's exactly. just more evidence that this court is not fully committed to transparency, which is the whole heart of the problem. Right, and it's certainly a reflection on the leadership provided by the
1: chief justice, I'm afraid. And so let's look at the review by Chertoff, which um, has been mentioned. Who is he? Um, What's his background? It's more than that he was secretary of Homeland Security. Um, And did it help at all to persuade you? Barb. Barb.
3: Yeah, it's it's kind of funny, isn't it? It's uh, We've got this uh, incredible marshal on our staff. We have uh, entrusted her to do this whole investigation and what she says goes. And then in the end, oh, and by the way, we had this other guy look over her shoulder and say, <laughs> yes, she did a good job. And what is that? So I thought that was kind of weird. But I suppose it was like getting a second opinion, right? Uh, knowing that there would be critics like us uh, who would say, Um, this is sort of uh, unsatisfactory that there is no uh, resolution to this, that uh, perhaps we ought to have a second opinion, take a look at this. But, you know, Michael Chertoff is someone who has been um, uh, in government for his whole career. He was a U.S. attorney. Uh, He worked in uh, the criminal division in the Justice Department. He was a federal judge. He was secretary of Homeland Security. And now he runs, you know, something called the Chertoff Group, which was one of these, you know, security firms. So he, he does have uh, really impeccable qualifications, I think, to look at this. And so he issues a, I mean, it's like a one or two pager, this short, very short little uh, document that says, uh, yep, I looked at it. Looks pretty good to me. Can't can't think of anything else she should have done. Here are a couple of recommendations. Like you know, be more careful with those documents, folks. <laughs> uh, the end. And you know, I'm sure he cleared like a hundred thousand dollars to write this thing, right? But uh, but uh, in their defense, I suppose they are bringing in somebody with some very strong bonafides to review and give the second opinion, I I suppose, in hopes of giving the public some assurance that this was not, you know, just some whitewash job, that uh, he's putting his name on it and and saying that I reviewed everything she did and I agree that she did all she could do uh, and this result was inevitable.
0: Yes, spoiler alert, it was just a whitewash. Right. Given her background and given
1: his background and given your comment that maybe an independent law firm should have been doing it, Why wasn't his firm hired to do the investigation, Mm -hmm. not just to sort of, yeah, second guess it? So um, now, as I said, this this document has been subject of mockery and derision. So I'm going to ask each of you two questions. Um, First question is, what made you laugh in the report? So, Joyce, you go first.
0: So absolutely nothing. I thought that this was just such a gloomy experience to read this. You know, um, I've spent so much time as an appellate lawyer. I appreciate how important it is for people to have confidence in the courts. That's not always easy because courts are going to rule against you part of the time or do things that you don't like. And the fact that the court did nothing whatsoever to restore
2: public confidence through this report I thought was super depressing. And what about you, Kim? Kim? Well, I mean, I I just thought so much of it was laughable. Like the fact that, I mean, you know, instead of the Keystone Cops, I kind of called it Keystone CSI, like, we tried to, we checked the chips of the printers that were, you know, in remote locations and we could not retrieve the data. We checked the fingerprints that could have been found on this document image and we didn't, we got no info. You know, it was just so, it, it, they were doing this, you know, forensic analysis that turned up absolutely nothing. And another part um, that stood out to me is is the part that said, the interviews uh, provided very few leads, Consumed concerning who may have publicly disclosed the document. Very few of the ind- individuals interviewed were willing to speculate on how the disclosure could have occurred or who might have been involved. So I'm like, okay, so wait a minute. This whole point is that in the Supreme Court, you're not supposed to snitch, right? And so then they went and asked people, are you gonna snitch? And then they didn't snitch and they put that in a report. Like what? Like, Of course they're not gonna tell on each other, you know? And then it's also the part about how uh, some of the clerks had to amend their affidavits because they didn't think that it was wrong to, you know, talk to their spouses about their work once this. Once this leak happened, and I just thought about myself, like, who would not go home after having a, the craziest workday ever and tell your <laughs> spouse, oh, my God, <laughs> this was the craziest workday ever? And they didn't think that that was against the rules. And the fact that there were basically no rules, there were no rules governing how to keep these deliberations completely and solidly secret It's just, it it was such a mess that that I I literally chuckled my way through. I agree with Joyce that this is deadly serious, but I chuckled my way through this whole report because it's just so laughable. And what about you, Barb?
3: Yeah, you know, I I, I don't know whether they laughed either because I do think it's it's pretty sad, but um, I had just the opposite reaction to the spouse uh, references to Kim, which was, I can't believe all these people are talking to their spouse about what's going on at the court. Uh, no you know, kidding, I, right? I, I, so, You know, uh, my husband and I have worked in the U.S. Attorney's Office on separate grand jury matters for our whole careers. There was a time when he was out of the Detroit office. There's a time now I'm out of the Detroit office. And we do not talk about cases. Um, I, I I do agree, Kim, that it's likely that they're saying this crazy thing happened today and I yes. was interviewed and, and those kinds of things, sure. I mean, that is that is a crazy day. But in terms of talking about the case, you know, that, wow, this really important opinion is coming down and we're about to reverse 50 years of precedent of Roe versus Wade. I would expect to keep that confidence. And the idea that they're all talking about it with their spouses, it really makes me think twice about what Clarence Thomas and, and his wife Ginny are talking about, <laughs> <laughs> that's
2: for sure. Well, we, and we don't sure. know. The, a clerk is not a prosecutor, right? A clerk could have, they could have just realize they're about to sign an affidavit that says, if this is a lie, you can be prosecuted. Mm -hmm. And so I would too say, okay, I may have gone home and told my husband I had the craziest day and you're going to see why and and feel fearful that that might lead to my prosecution. But they're not. Yeah. I think that this is a little different. So anything else
1: that stood out to you about um, this report that you want to mention to our audience?
0: So I think it's sort of stunning that the court thought that this would satisfy the American public, right? And it, I, I think it highlights what we've been talking about, but, but it goes a little bit beyond the lack of public confidence. And it suggests that perhaps there's a little bit of an perish the thought ivory tower syndrome going on over at the court, and that they're very out of touch with how savvy the public is and how carefully the public is watching them.
3: I will say one other thing and be a little bit of a contrarian, Joyce. Uh, have you ever conducted a leak investigation? It's, it's not easy. I can't and tell you, Barb. I... <laughs> <laughs> if I were your spouse, you'd tell me, I bet.
0: <laughs> um, you know, no, I will tell you that Bob at one point notoriously was asked by somebody in public about a, qu- a case that I was working on when I was a line prosecutor. And he just sort of looked floored and he's like, Joyce is working on that? And the, the reporters at the local papers called me and said, your husband just paid you the, the nicest compliment because um, he didn't know because we never yeah. talk about anything.
3: No, and, and I, I, I wouldn't expect to. But on, on the leak thing, um, there was a time when there was a grand jury leak in a case we were working on in my former office. And uh, we wanted to get to the bottom of it. You know, we are not going to tolerate leaks. So we did an inquiry within the office and we did not find anybody who did it. I was satisfied it didn't actually come out of the office, that it probably came from somewhere else, probably a witness, uh, which is more likely because they are permitted to talk. But it made me realize just how hard it is to conduct one of these because people aren't going to confess to you. It would be career suicide to say, I'm the one who did this. Um, And, you know, with the processes they had at the court, which I think is one thing that is, a useful revelation here is just how sloppy they are. You know, they print out these copies and they're just lying around all over the place. Everybody gets access to them. Um, I th- especially when they're working from home, I think it would have been very easy for someone to have printed it, left it, and a household worker or a family member to have gotten a hold of this thing. Who knows? But I think it is, it is more difficult perhaps than people realize, especially when you don't have tight controls over your documents, um, to solve a leak case. And when you don't have criminal
0: investigators pursuing Correcting. that investigation
3: uh-oh this just in breaking uh-oh. news by greg store oh my gosh supreme court marshal says she did question the justices oh oh wow <laughs> uh-oh
1: <laughs> proof that you don't talk to your husband about See, work.
2: <laughs> you I did he did not tell me that
3: <laughs> it's three minutes ago breaking news three minutes ago A trial began this week in San Francisco in a case brought by investors against Elon Musk. This case has nothing to do with his ownership of Twitter, though. This case is about his role as CEO of Tesla, the electric car company. Um, And Twitter does have a role in this case, however. Um, Jill, can you tell us about this lawsuit? I mean, why are Tesla investors suing Elon Musk? What's their claim? They are claiming they lost billions of dollars because
1: of a tweet that he posted before he owned Twitter. He posted that he was going to take Tesla private at $420 a share and that funding was secured. That was not correct, and it was reckless to have said it. And in fact, the judge has basically said, Uh, Yeah, it's basically you got summary judgment on the fact that it was false and that it was reckless. Um, Now what they have to prove is that they lost money because of that tweet. And that's going to be a hard thing to do. But I think there's probably pretty much evidence that the price of the stock was altered by that statement it went up and then it crashed. And when it proved untrue, it just went down. Some of them lost money on options that went underwater because they had bought options either to buy at a certain price, which was no longer going to be valid, or they had promised to sell at a certain price. And that was going to be a loss for them as well. So that's what the case is all about.
3: Imagine that Elon Musk making a reckless comment on Twitter, causing (laughs) disastrous results. Wow. How unusual. So, Kim, there was also already a lawsuit brought by the Securities and Exchange Commission um, against uh, Elon Musk for this same uh, statement. What is the SEC and what happened in that lawsuit and why doesn't that resolve all of this?
2: So the SEC is an independent federal agency that is tasked with enforcing uh, securities federal securities laws, particularly uh, laws uh, that protect against securities market manipulation. And they bring... Uh, both civil actions in court, as well as administrative enforcement actions against both uh, companies and individuals that may violate these laws. So you're right. uh, Musk was sued by the SEC um, and they accused him of knowingly making false and misleading statements. And that case was settled. And in that settlement, Musk agreed to step down as Tesla's chairman, but he remained the CEO, And he also paid $2 million in a penalty and agreed to um, some compliance measures. But the one thing he did not do is admit or deny uh, the allegations made against him in that. So that's what le- leads us to this current suit. Interesting.
3: Um, Joyce, do you think that if there's a big jury verdict against Elon Musk in the Tesla case— it would teach him a lesson about how he should conduct himself on Twitter, either as a user or or as its owner. So, Barbara, are you asking me
0: if the conventional <laughs> wisdom applies to Elon Musk? Yes, because I, guess um, so. I, guess I, I think right that's a it's a conventional wisdom thing mm-hmm. that, that the threat of a large jury verdict or an actual jury verdict will deter somebody from continuing to engage in misconduct, and maybe hopefully will deter others too. Um, and it's a tough call with Musk. Uh, Although he has lost a lot of money, he's still extremely wealthy, and it may be that he will simply view that as a cost of doing business, or, or perhaps his condition is now changed and maybe he will take it more seriously. But ultimately it looks to me like it's really the SEC investigation that you and Kim talked about that's gotten under his skin a little bit more. He's actually back in court challenging the terms of the settlement Mm -hmm. there because he has to have his public statements reviewed by a lawyer so he can't tweet about Tesla without having a lawyer look at it. That seems to really bother him, perhaps even more than a large money judgment would.
3: Well, and then let me ask you the opposite question. What happens if he wins in this case? If he prevails against the Tesla investors, uh, what effect could that have on Elon Musk? You know, it's (laughs) like the the little
0: kid who gets away with doing something, right? The little kid who comes up with the story, oh, no, mommy, it wasn't me that was turning up the thermostat. You know, it was a ghost. It was the cold wind that turned up the thermostat. Um, I think that that would be Elon Musk unleashed. So every week our listeners send us thought-provoking, interesting questions that help to make this our favorite part of the podcast. Please email your questions for us to sistersinlaw@politicon.com or tweet using hashtag sistersinlaw. If we don't get to your questions during the show, keep an eye on our Twitter feeds throughout the week, because we'll answer as many of your questions as we can there. But this week, we have some really great questions. Jill, this first one has definitely got your name on it. It's from Janet, and she says, I'd like to volunteer for worthwhile causes. How can I get involved in advancing the Equal Rights Amendment?
1: I am so glad that Janet asked that question, because there's a lot you can do. And Next week has a lot of anniversaries uh, that involve the Equal Rights Amendment. So here's some of the things, and I will post this on our uh, show notes so that you can you know, get the exact links. But first of all, you can contact your congressional representatives and senators and ask them to take action to have a resolution that says that the amendment is the law of the land that no further action is necessary. And even if your congressman is a blue state person, they still need your support. You can write to the White House. You can write letters to the editor or write an opinion piece and share them widely. You can join groups that are supporting the Equal Rights Amendment, such as Vote Equality, the ERA Coalition, NOW, the AAUW, Zonta and the League of Women Voters. And then you can ask your state legislatures to pass resolutions. And there's one in Illinois um, right now filed by Representative Jennifer Gong Gershowitz. It affirms the ERA and asks the various branches of the national government to take action to do the same.
0: So I'll post that on our show notes. Second question, Kim, I think is um, for you. Everyone is talking about the freshman member of Congress from New York, George Santos or whatever the heck his name is. Um, What do you expect will happen to him? (laughs) Can he be removed from the House? Could there be a do-over vote in New York? Are we going to be stuck with him for a while?
2: Yeah, we actually got a lot of questions about that, particularly about what voters who voted for him and feel... uh, duped can do. And the answer is, look, there's no recall mechanism for federal elections. So uh, that is unlikely to happen, really. The only recourse for voters is to if he runs for re-election, vote in that election and make your opinion known. Now, what, what happens within the Republican caucus is different. There are rules within that. He's been seated on committees, but Kevin McCarthy has hinted that it's unlikely that he'll get a security clearance, for example. But, um, you know, it whatever happens to him would have to be under the rules of the House as per the Republican caucus. And, and Kevin McCarthy has not indicated any willingness you know, given his very slim majority, that that is going to happen. So I think if George Santos wants to stay, in all likelihood, he will stay at least for these two years.
0: Mm -mm Mm-mm-mm. Um... Barb, last question is for you. And this is such an interesting one, as long as we're on the subject of Kevin McCarthy and Congress, right? This um, is a very interesting house that seems intent on uh, doing as much as it can do to help out the former president. And Sue asks whether it would be possible for them to expunge an impeachment of a president.
3: Yeah, you know, I think technically no, right? The Constitution describes what impeachment is. It doesn't say anything about expungement of an impeachment. And so I think technically no, but it probably doesn't stop Congress from passing some sort of resolution that says so. Uh, You know, he was never convicted. And so you don't really need to expunge an accusation. uh, So it doesn't have any effect. But I imagine as a PR stunt, Uh, I could imagine this Congress passing some sort of resolution to expunge, because how do you ever challenge it? How how could you, um, I mean, I'm I'm sure there'll be members of the Democratic Party who who challenge it, and then maybe the next time they take the House, they will pass a resolution to undo the expungement. But Jill, do you have thoughts on this? You're our impeachment guru. (laughs) I know. I, I guess, well, the one thing is, had he been convicted,
1: he could not be pardoned. That is in the presidential, in the Constitution, Except in matters of impeachment, comma. Yeah. So he he could not be pardoned. And I agree with you. They could, it would be considered special legislation, um, almost like a, you know, a a writ uh, specifically targeting a person, and that is never allowed. Um, I had that problem when I was general counsel of the army, and there was a need to help actually a- soldier who had been injured, and it was very difficult to pass specific legislation to help a specific person. So I, I think you're right. Um, but this, the political clown show will probably try to do something like that.
0: Thank you for listening to Hashtag Sisters in Law with Kimberly Atkins Store, Jill Winebanks, Barb McQuaid, and me, Joyce Vance. You can send in your questions by email to at or tweet them for next week's show using hashtag sisters-in-law. Given what's been going on, I'm sure y'all will have a lot of them. Go to politicon.com slash merch to buy our shirts, hoodies, and other goodies, and please support this week's sponsors, HelloFresh, Blue Land, Real Paper, and Noom. You can find their links in the show notes. Please support them. They really help to make the show happen. To keep up with us every week, Follow hashtag sisters in law on Apple podcasts or wherever you listen. And please give us a five star review. It really helps others find the show. See you next week with a new episode, hashtag sisters in law.
2: Hey, Joyce, um, how did the fried chicken come out or have you tried to make
0: it? Well, you know, we didn't make it. Y'all, Bob wants to make fried chicken. And he was, you know, he wanted to like put it in a really deep pan you know, like a soup pot and fry it. And I said, honey, I don't think that that's how Kim did it. So I, I texted Kim and I was like, tell me what pan you use to, to fry chicken in. And she graciously sent a photo. So we're all ready, but you know, I'm a good Jewish girl. I cannot fry chicken like I don't deep fry, but I'm hoping that Bob can. His dad used to make fabulous
2: fried chicken and he used to make Fabulous fried okra. So I'm hoping can. it's genetic and Bob can do it. Yeah, it's it. not a deep fry. It's a it's a, like I said, I use a cast iron pan. So you put it in and you turn it. It's it's not deep frying. It's just frying. Does yeah, that make he sense? thought it was gonna like go in some big thing full of no. oil and it was gonna make I mean, a huge t- mess in my kitchen. The top of it at first will be outside of the oil. That's okay. You turn yeah. it. It's
0: okay. He got it. Thank you, Kim. <laughs> kitchen tips from Kim. Everyone needs them. It's a new we- podcast. <laughs> Hashtag Sisters in Law Cookbook. I'm just, I'm just saying. That would be so much fun. We could get I'm just listeners saying. to send in recipes. Jill, don't you have a recipe for cauliflower soup? It's one head of cauliflower that you core,
1: break up into florets. You put it in four cups of boiling water with two teaspoons of salt. You boil it for about five minutes and it gets soft. And then you put the, all the cauliflower in your blender fill it halfway up with the water that you boiled it in, and blend it. And you can add salt, pepper, butter, or olive oil, or nothing. And that's it. It's just – and you can make it – I don't leave it pureed. I leave it with a little chunkiness in it. And so it no broth, is
2: just, no, other, no other ingredients needed? The,
1: just the broth that you – the water that From you the cooked cooking. it in. So it's like when you have your blender – Filled this high, you fill it halfway with the water. Sometimes you need to add more. It depends on you know the texture of the cauliflower. I added a little more than half this time, and it was thick and perfect. It was delicious.